Third John, verse one, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Who is Gaius? Well, Gaius is actually mentioned four times in this brief letter that John writes to the church. And we see from what is written about Gaius that Gaius is a godly leader in the church. Again, mentioned four times as John pens this letter. I say that Gaius is a godly leader to really distinguish him from Diotrephes, who seems to be a not-so-godly leader, really just a thorn in John's flesh. Anybody in your life like that? You got just kind of a thorn in your flesh? We'll unpack Diotrephes here in a few minutes. Gaius was a godly man. And I just wonder, as we make that statement, what were some of his attributes? What were some of his attributes? And so we've actually titled the message today, Qualities of a Godly Person. We're going to kind of learn from John's letter here in 3 John what a godly person looks like. And uh, hopefully we can grow from our understanding of the truth and grow in our ability to be godly in our own lives. Qualities of a godly person. Number one, a godly person walks in the truth. A godly person walks in the truth. And John, John is a champion of truth. He writes about it throughout his writings. He's writing about truth. And the truth John is talking about is eternal truth. It is absolute, objective truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This truth that John is speaking about is the truth that new life is found in Jesus Christ alone. This is true throughout the whole body of Scripture. The truth is that new life, salvation, is found in Christ alone. The truth that John is talking about impacts our eternity because this truth is eternal. Real truth that is eternal and immutable. That means that it changes not. We serve a God who changes not, who is immutable, and he has communicated truth to us that changes not, that is immutable. Today, in the culture, they, whoever they are, they try to tell us that truth is subjective and is personal. So whatever we think is truth can be truth for us. Truth is defined as whatever someone wants to believe as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And so we need to be careful about that because the living God, the eternal God, has given us immutable truth that we can build our lives upon. Anything else that is apart from that is like sinking sand. You try to build your life upon it, it's just going to shift and sink and it's going to cause all kinds of problems for you. I've been pondering this passage of scripture recently. My wife reminded me of 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we've been kind of navigating this week. The title of this passage, it's not on the screen, but the title of the passage says, Godlessness in the Last Days. And so as we're looking at godliness, it's helpful for us to contrast with godlessness. What is godlessness? And so we'll just read these first five verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul told Timothy to avoid such people. So in the scripture, we see what ungodliness or godlessness looks like. And now we see in this passage what godliness looks like. What are the, the, the attributes of someone who is godly? A godly person's life is marked by truth and the one and only truth of the Bible is what we're talking about. It's the truth of the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We must, we must understand the truth if we are to walk in the truth. So a godly person's life is marked by truth. We must understand the truth, and this takes work. This actually takes work for us to engage the scripture so that we understand truth. And so effort is required on our part if we're to live godly lives. We actually can't live godly lives if we're not aware and, uh, and familiar with the truth of God's word. If we don't know what God expects of us, we can't reflect his expectations in the way that we live our lives. And so work must be put into the understanding of scripture so that we can walk it out. We must understand the truth. I, I love that um, in all of the ages of our classrooms here on this campus for this church, from the very youngest to our high school and college groups and young adults, we're always trying to impart the truth of God's word to our people so that, so that believing is possible. With understanding, believing is possible. And so that's why we pass out these ESV study Bibles that weigh five pounds so that people, these young people can grab hold of the truth and get understanding that they don't have in this season of their life and grow in that understanding. We must understand the truth and this absolutely takes work. We must believe the truth and this takes faith. So work and faith work hand in hand in our ability to reflect the truth that God puts into his word. We must believe the truth. We walk by faith and not by sight. Although the word of God, when we understand it, we understand that it's very easy to believe. But still, in our lives, we must walk by faith. We must understand the truth. This takes work. We must believe the truth. This takes faith. We must follow the truth. This takes obedience. So work and faith and obedience are part of what God calls us to as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through this work and this faith and this obedience that we reflect godliness in our lives. We actually become godly people. Our lives are transformed as we do what God has called us to do with his word. It's one thing to say that you're a Christian, declaring oneself to be a Christian. A Christ follower, though, must be proved. It must be proved by your life. Gaius lived his faith. He lived the truth. And you can't actually say, you can't actually say I'm a follower of Christ and promote a godless lifestyle. 
we must understand what God expects from us in his word, and we must live that and promote that, that type of lifestyle. You can't say, I follow Christ and live a life of sin. It's a contradictory situation and scenario. We know that Gaius was a godly man because, because of what others said about him and because the way he lived his life. I want to be said about me what has been said about Gaius. I want people to be able to look at my life and say, that's a godly person. I want to be reflected in my words, thoughts, and deeds, my actions and attitudes that I am a godly person. I want what Gaius has been blessed with, a wonderful reputation in his life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Gaius was a godly man because of what others said about him and because of the way he lived his life. John continues, verse two, beloved, another reference to Gaius, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I like what verse three says in the New Living Translation. It says this, some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to the truth. John recognized that Gaius was living according to the truth. Verse four, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And the truth is that we will have the greatest joy in our own lives when we are walking in the truth. That joy is compromised when we compromise our convictions and the way that we live our lives. But when we are living as godly people, the greatest possible joy is available to us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've experienced that. You've experienced that. We've all experienced that. When we allow compromise into our lives, our joy begins to go away and fade away. But when we're faithful to Jesus by his grace and because he's strong through us and in us, man, we have incredible joy as a result of that determination and that conviction. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Walking in the truth means standing up for truth even when it is uncomfortable and unpopular. And standing for the truth will become even more uncomfortable and unpopular as the days wear on. And so we've got to decide to stand firm. We've got to decide that no matter what comes at us, we are going to stand for truth, as uncomfortable as it gets, as unpopular as it gets. Walking in the truth will cost you. Maybe now, more than any time in our recent history, walking in the truth will cost you. It will continue to cost you until Jesus gets us out of here, right? And how many are ready for that? I think I'm ready for that. Walking in the truth will cost you. People won't like you. My wife made a statement yesterday as we're driving to Miner's Hardware. She says, because we've been dealing with some stuff, and she said, it's not, I don't like not being liked, I think is what she said. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. I don't like not being liked, right? It's just like our human nature. We want to be liked. But when you stand for truth, you risk 
not being liked. People won't like you. People won't understand what you're doing. People will attempt to intimidate you. People will, as is understood in the context of this culture, they will dox you, D-O-X. How many have heard that word before? Dox, right? It's kind of a newer word in my vocabulary. Maybe it's not new to our English vocabulary, but it's new to me. It means to publicly identify or publish private information about someone, especially as a form of punishment or revenge. This is what we can expect from the world as we stand for truth. People will come after us in the form of punishment or revenge. If you stand for truth, it will cost you. But what a glorious thing. Like the early church followers of Jesus Christ, when they were persecuted for their faith, they were able to say, thank you, Lord, that you counted me worthy to suffer persecution for your cause, for your name. What a glorious thing to suffer persecution because we are standing for the truth as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be dismayed or confused by it. We should be like expecting it. Like this will happen when we stand for truth in a culture that does not understand the truth that we stand for. Qualities of a godly person, number one, a godly person walks in the truth. Number two, a godly person uses their resources to support the work of truth. Gaius served and supported others as they proclaimed the gospel, and John honors him for it. Verse 5, beloved, another reference to Gaius. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. These brothers are preachers of the word, traveling itinerant preachers who would go from city to city to preach the gospel. And as they went from city to city, they would count on believing people, Christians, to, to take them in, into their home, to care for their needs, to feed them, and to provide for them. This was the culture. Well, it was the culture then, and it's the culture now, really, within the church. We still provide for itinerants and missionaries and pastors who are doing the teaching of God's word. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. John points out that Gaius didn't even know who they were, but he knew that they had the same mission that he had. And so he was happy to serve them by supplying all of their needs. Verse six, who testified to your love before the church. These, these brothers testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And so John's saying, Gaius, you need to take care of these preachers of the truth while they're with you. Take care of all of their needs while they're with you, but then send them on their way so that they have resource to get to the next city, so that they can get to the next city and proclaim the gospel. And so the responsibility was on the church and the local community to support those traveling preachers so that they might have what they need, sustenance, strength, and grace to preach the gospel. And then as they were going to the next city, they needed resource to do that as well. And so the church had a responsibility, the believing church had a responsibility to provide for the needs of those who are going to preach the truth, to preach the gospel. Verse seven, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing 
from the Gentiles. The Gentiles refers to non-believing pagans. So John is saying, listen, preachers of the truth, preachers of the word shouldn't have to rely on non-believing pagans. They must be able to rely on the church, the believers who share the same vision and purpose and calling in this life that the gospel might be preached to every generation till Jesus returns. Therefore, verse eight, we ought to support people like these, John said, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So again, it was the custom in the early church, as it is today, to support traveling preachers or missionaries with financial support. It's a partnership, as John wrote, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So everybody's got different gifts and talents. There are some who are called to preach and teach and to travel and preach and teach. And there, there are others who are called to support them through prayer and financial uh, ways and other means. And then John recognizes that it's a partnership that we can't do this alone. They can't do it alone. And so he's recognizing that Gaius recognizes this and steps up with his own personal resource to make sure that these preachers of the gospel had exactly what they needed so that they could continue to preach the gospel. It's a partnership. Uh, that's a partnership I want to be a part of. If I can't go, I want to help send. If I can't be there, I want to help support those who are there. It's a partnership that God has called us into, and it's a partnership that godly people are a part of. Gaius used his personal resources for the spreading of the truth of the gospel. Godly people use their resources to support the work of the truth. And you can't, you can't actually claim to be a godly person if you don't use your resources to support the work of the truth of the gospel. Jesus made it ultra clear in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 21. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus said, store your treasures in heaven. How do we store our treasures in heaven? We store our treasures in heaven by giving to the kingdom work that God is about here in the earth. This is how we store up our treasures in heaven. And those treasures, it says, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus says this, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. <laughs> Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Meaning you pay for things and support things that you believe in. So as believers in the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be supporting the work of the kingdom with our resources. Why? Because godly people use their personal resource to support the kingdom work in the earth. It is our responsibility. It was our responsibility in the first century and every century since. It is our responsibility as the church to support the kingdom work that God is about here in the earth. You say, I don't have enough resource to help. Jesus addresses that as well. Don't you love that Jesus addresses our excuses? <laughs> he addresses our excuses every single time. I'm reminded of the widow's offering in Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he, Jesus, 
sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. I love that the scripture tells us that Jesus watched as people put money into the offering box because we know that it's true, but it's just helpful for us to see it in the pages of scripture that Jesus is watching us and understands and knows exactly what we're putting into the offering box. This was his observation. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. A Roman copper coin was worth about one 64th of a laborer's day's wage, a denarius. So this poor widow put in very little resource, very little bit into the offering box. She came in and put two copper coins, which make a penny, and he called, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, surely I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering. For they, are, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I feel bad for this poor widow woman because I would imagine as she put everything that she had into the offering box that she probably went out and starved to death. She probably went out and got evicted from her place that she lived because she had given all of her money away. Isn't that a sad ending to her story? Do you think that's what happened to this poor widow woman? Why don't you think, I mean, the scripture doesn't make it clear what happened to this poor widow woman. What do you think happened to her? Louder. God blessed her. God blessed her, okay. So if it's true for the poor widow woman, is it true for us? My Bible tells me that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same Jesus who watched this poor widow woman put everything she had into the offering box, we know, even though we don't see it in the scripture, we know the character of God and the goodness of God, and the grace of God, and the provision of God. And we know that he would never allow this poor widow woman to suffer uh, because of her sacrificial gift. But we know, because we know God, that she was blessed. And she, in her own life, was blessed beyond what she had the capacity to give because her, uh, her faith was in not those two copper coins, but in the Lord, the Savior of her life. And she knew that if she put what the Lord asked her to put into that offering box that God was big enough to take care of her. I think sometimes we forget about that. And maybe we're putting into the offering box out of our abundance, but it really doesn't cost us anything. You see, God didn't look at the amount. He looked at the heart of the person giving the gift. He looked at the heart of the person who said, Jesus is my Lord, and I'm going to give everything, everything that is important to me, everything that I'm relying on for sustenance in this life. I'm going to give it all to him because I know that he is faithful to provide all of my needs. And so we don't even know what the rest of the story is, but we know what the rest of of the story is. We know that God is faithful. We know that he's good. We know that he's faithful. So why not in our own lives believe the same thing instead of just giving a little bit out of fear? 
or out of our abundance, but it doesn't really cost us anything, or instead of holding on to our last two copper coins out of desperation, why not just open up our hands and just see what the Lord will do with it? When Jolene and I were early in our married life, we were broke as church mice. We were, I mean, we were broke as broke gets, and we kept having kids. I don't know why, but we kept having kids. <laughs> then one day we got a television. Jolene's grandparents bought us a television, and all of a sudden we stopped having kids. It was this supernatural experience. But up to that point, we had four kids, and four kids, somebody lied to us along the way. They said, it doesn't cost any more to have four kids than it does to have two. That is a lie, right? Because now I gotta buy four pairs of shoes. And basketball season rolls around and those are expensive basketball shoes, right? Well, now I gotta feed four kids. I gotta put diapers on four kids. I gotta have a car big enough for four kids, right? But we were clueless and young and still a little bit clueless and still very young. And so <laughs> we, just, we decided that broke or not, we were just gonna give to the Lord because we're broke already. We might as well trust the Lord in, a, in this place of brokenness, right? And so we would give, and, and then the Lord would just supernaturally meet our needs and wonderfully provide for our family. And so our kids and our families never gone without, no matter, no matter what. Whenever we gave according to his will, out of obedience to him, he was always faithful to meet our needs, always faithful to do so. So what was true for that poor widow woman is true for you, it's true for me, it's always been true for all of us. And so if we can just have the faith of that godly widow woman and just trust the Lord with our resources, God, at your testimony, because you know, I didn't tell you, you just knew the character of God, the goodness of God, the abilities of God, the power of God to meet the needs of that poor widow woman. John continues, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Who is this person, Diotrephes? Well, we know that he liked to put himself first. And I will tell you that putting ourselves first is the the biggest issue when it comes to obedience because we want what we want and God wants what God wants. And I've found that if we let God win in that argument, we also get what we want. God is the giver of every good gift. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is good. God is faithful. So when we let God win and let him determine what we do with our lives and what we give out of our resource, the blessings flow incredibly so. But even if not, we are still called out of humble obedience to do what God has called us to do with our resource. Even if there was never a blessing, we are still responsible to steward our resources well to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Diotrephes, he must have been a person of authority. He was selfish in that John said he likes to put himself first. He was rebellious or didn't work well with others. 
John said that Diotrephes did not acknowledge John's authority. Qualities of a godly person, number one, a godly person walks in the truth. Number two, a godly person uses their resource to support the work of truth. And number three, a godly person honors the work of other godly people. So we can tell from John's text that Diotrephes was probably a small man. Not in stature, but in perspective. He had his little corner of the world and was doing what he thought to be the work of God in that little corner of the world. And yet he didn't honor what others were doing in that corner of the world. And so in essence, he was being a tool of the enemy within the church. We need to be careful that we're not being a tool of the enemy inside of God's church. Verse 10, John said, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. John said, when I come, I'm gonna talk about this guy. I love that John doesn't wait till he comes though and he just begins to talk about this guy. He said, when I come, I'm gonna tell you what this guy's been doing. But then he said, talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He refused to welcome the preachers of the truth. He was maybe threatened by them, didn't like them, didn't want anything to do with them, so he refused to welcome the brothers. And also, he stopped those who wanted to welcome the brothers, and he put them out of the church. Diotrephes was not a godly person. He stood in the way of godly people. Diotrephes was arrogant and doesn't even realize that he's being used as a tool of the enemy. Diotrephes refused to recognize and honor the godly work of others. There was something missing in his heart and his mind. He had a knowledge of God, most likely. He understood something about God. But the power of God to do good works in his life was absent because he was self-absorbed. He liked to put himself First. Listen, if that's our effort to make sure that we're first, we will never do the kingdom work that God has called us to do. God is constantly calling people to, he's calling us to elevate others, to equip and release the saints into the work of the ministry. Diatrophies missed that and he was threatened by it and he didn't want anything to do with it. So he became a thorn in John's flesh and he hindered the work of God in the earth. Qualities of a godly person. A godly person walks in the truth. A godly person uses their resource to support the work of truth. A godly person honors the work of other godly people. This is why we stand with other godly people in our community. There's amazing churches in our community and we pray for them and bless them and help them if we can. But we we know that we're in a partnership with others within the body of Christ here on the Central Coast. Number four, a godly person does good. Seems obvious, It's important to talk about it, though. A godly person does good. Beloved, Gaius, another reference to Gaius. Beloved, do not imitate evil. He's saying, do not imitate diatrophies, right? Don't imitate this guy who is a troublemaker within the church, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. I don't think diatrophies even knew that he was doing evil but in his ignorance about the ways of God, he was doing evil. And so John is challenging Gaius, pick a better role model. Like find somebody who is godly in your sphere of influence and emulate them, copy 
their behavior, become like they are, become a godly person. Make sure that your life is not evil, but that it is good. And then John brings up another person, a third person, Demetrius. Verse 12, Demetrius, in contrast to Diotrephes, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. John said, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So who is Demetrius? Well, he comes with no real introduction in the scripture, so we can conclude that he was probably known within the church, and so not a lot of introduction was needed. And so John just begins to talk about Demetrius. He was well-known, and so he just begins to talk about his testimony. We don't know much about him, except that he had a good reputation. Verse 12 tells us Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. This must mean that his life squares with the gospel. His life squares with the truth, meaning that his life runs parallel with the scripture. If the scripture says it, it's like a mirror to him that he must emulate. He must live his life according to the truth that we see in the pages of scripture. And so John blesses him and speaks well of him. John also adds his testimony. He concurs that Demetrius was a godly man. So number four, a good person a godly person does good. Number five, a godly person has a good testimony. How's your testimony? We heard an amazing testimony yesterday at our men's breakfast. We had a 40 guys show up or whatever the number was. We had some amazing food, and then we heard a testimony. Now, this guy who shared his testimony is here today, and I'm going to leave him anonymous because that's what he prefers. But he talked about what a knucklehead he was before Jesus got a hold of his life. He talked about how angry he was in his life. At 62 years old, he was still this grumpy old guy. I think I've got the age right. And he had made a mess of his marriage. He had made a mess of his family. He had made a mess of his life. And so out of desperation one day, he cries out to Jesus in all of his brokenness and decides to give his life to Jesus. And God did something wonderful and supernatural in his life. If you see this guy walking around the campus, because he's here all of the time now, you would think you've just met the happiest person on the earth. You ask him how he's doing, his face lights up. God had done something supernatural and wonderful in him. He's so happy to be alive, so happy to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, so happy for the transformation that has changed him and uh, changed his marriage and changed his family. He is a brand new person where once he was an angry old guy. Ever been there? Now he's a brand new creature, a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. After he left, because he had to go tend to his wife, I asked his son, who happened to be there, I said, hey, Garrett, is this true? I didn't say I'd keep Garrett confidential. I said, hey, Garrett, 
is what your dad said is what he said true? He said, absolutely. So I said, he was a grumpy old guy? He's like, absolutely. He's the happiest guy that you'll ever meet now. Why? Because he gave his life to Jesus. And he had what we call a born again experience where once he was dead, now he's alive. Once he was blind, now he can see. Once he didn't know Jesus, but now he does and his life is completely different. So after he left and we were getting ready to wrap up, I asked the group, the guys, I said, is there anybody here that would like to have a born again experience like this guy's had and like this guy's described? And a guy that's been coming to the church for a bit, he raised his hand and stood up and I called him forward, and I said, what are you doing up here? And he just talked about how he had made a mess of his life and how he knew that he needed to give his life to Jesus. I said, would you be willing to pray and give your life to Jesus in front of all of these men? He said, yeah. So I handed him the microphone, and he just confessed, repented, uh, spoke to the Lord from a broken in a contrite heart. And he welcomed Jesus into his life, but not just welcomed him into his life. He welcomed the lordship of Jesus into his life. And I know because I know God that his life will never be the same. This is what God offers to us. This is why our testimony is so important. The way that we live our lives, it speaks to people. And by God's grace, it calls people to a place of re repentance, brokenness, and contrition so that they too might be born again, so that they too might know Jesus, so they, they, might, they too might have their lives completely corrected and turned around for God's glory and their good. If you're here today, if you're here today and you would like a born-again experience, if you would like to give your life to Jesus, I would just encourage you to raise your hand even now because I'd like to pray for you. If you're here today and you know it's time to surrender to Jesus, please take this opportunity to raise your hand so that the brothers and sisters gathered here can love on you and pray for you. If that's you, go ahead and raise your hand. I could have everybody close their eyes, but I don't think that would actually help with your decision. <laughs> because godly people are living their lives in front of others. And so you're in a very safe place if today you're saying, I need to give my life to Jesus. Today, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I'm, I'm tired of trying to do it in my own strength. I'm tired of trying to make things better. I'm tired of trying to get victory over these areas of my life. I need to give my life to Jesus. Would you like to give your life to Jesus today? It's time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and stand as we pray. Lord, as we have worshipped and will continue to worship as we have looked into the counsel of your word, I thank you, Lord, that you have the ability 
the capacity, the desire to speak to us. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who needs to give their lives to you, Lord God, that they wouldn't let much more time pass, Lord, but they would be reminded of this message and reminded of the truth of the gospel and that they would surrender their lives to you, that they would humble themselves and do so, Lord. And I pray that each of us would humble ourselves and submit to your lordship and leadership every day of our lives, God, that we as people of the faith here at Harvest Church, as we follow you, I pray that our lives would reflect godliness, that people would look at us and say that is a godly, godly person. Help us, Lord, we pray. Be glorified, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.